I'll be seated if you will. We are still in the Gospel of John where we'll be for a number of months. We'll be in John chapter 2 verses 12 through 25 this morning. And as we looked at last week, Jesus has begun his his earthly ministry and he did so according to the Gospel of John by showing up at the wedding in Cana and there performed the first miracle that John has cited in his gospel, and that is the turning of the water into wine. And it's so easy for us to lose the significance of what that miracle is about. It was not about the wine. It was not about the wedding that it was at. It was to display to his disciples who he really was, to prove to them that he was the Messiah, to reveal his glory and to enable them to truly believe in him. And so here in this next portion of John's Gospel, early in the ministry of Jesus, we see him arriving at the temple. And again, this event is one that is only recorded by John. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, record a temple cleansing, but all of them record this temple cleansing at the end of Jesus' ministry. And at the end of that temple cleansing, Jesus' arrest is secured and his eventual crucifixion is taken place. And so John's presentation is very likely one before the other gospel writers were a part of the crew known as the disciples. If you look closely at this narrative and the narrative that appears in the Synoptic Gospels, you'll see many differences that do indicate that this is in fact the first of two temple cleansings that would be recorded in the gospel. Now, John does not stick to a, to a strict chronological order in his gospel, but it wouldn't, and we'll see this later as we go through this, but it would not make sense for John to record the temple cleansing at the end of Jesus' ministry at the beginning of his earthly ministry. Does that make sense? So what is recorded in the synoptics is very clearly at the end of his ministry, and if that was the only temple cleansing, it would make no sense for John to present it, to present it here. So most believe that this was, in fact, the first of two cleansings, and it's only recorded by John the Apostle. So let's look together at what the Gospel of John says in chapter 2, verses 12 through 25. Somewhat of a lengthy passage, but we'll read it together in one setting. Here's what it says. After this, the miracle in Cana, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. 
And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. You know, it's interesting that in the reading of the temple cleansing, not only here, but what the Synoptic Gospels would record later on in their rendition, is the contrast that this cleansing has been received with. Many people are shocked and surprised to see Jesus to be so firm and forceful and to show such strength that he would do what he did in making a scourge of cords and driving out all of the animals and overturning the tables of the money changers. And it seems to challenge their preconceived idea of exactly who Jesus is. You know, in our modern culture, people want to make God all about love. God is love and He is merciful and He is kind and He is generous. And when you start talking about the wrath of God or the justice of God or the judgment of God, people will often say, now wait a minute, that doesn't fit my idea of who God is. Well, guess what? You've got a bad idea about who God is. Just as gentle as we see Jesus displayed in many of the Scripture, we also know that Jesus was strong and determined and possessed in Him a righteous anger that would not tolerate the kind of religious perversion that was taking place amongst the Jewish nation led by the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. We read passages like this in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, that's a contrast to the overturning of the money changers tables, isn't it? And the driving out of all of the animals. How about in John chapter 8 when Jesus has the woman caught in adultery brought to him and straightening up Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. Again, a very gentle side in contrast to what we see here in the temple cleansing. Lastly, in Matthew chapter 19, probably one of the most tender passages we could envision. Some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So Jesus possessed a righteous anger. He reserved his harshest and most confrontational words to the religious leaders of the day. And we'll hear things like, You brood of vipers... You are living in whitewashed tombs. And these were the kinds of statements that would render the Pharisees enraged. But this righteous anger that he had was always directed at these who had distorted the truth of God, the word of God, and the worship of God. And this is what we find here today. So first of all, we're going to look at the setting. Verse 12. After this, after the miracle in Cana, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. So after the miracle of Cana, when the disciples had seen for the first time evidence that this is in fact the Messiah, although it was a very partial revealing and a very partial understanding, these men were already convinced that Jesus was in fact the promised Messiah. 
Now, there's no real timeline given here. It says that they stayed a few days, and what that means is very difficult to understand. But we know it wasn't immediate from the miracle in Cana. There was some time, a few days, and then there was also the travel time to get to Jerusalem. Number two, Jesus travels with his disciples and his family. So who all is a part of this disciple group is not mentioned, but we know from earlier in the Gospel of John that only Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel are named, and it's implied that John the Apostle is also a part of this initial group. So we don't know how many of the disciples were actually there, and you will not hear mention in the Gospel of John about the full group of 12 until somewhere in chapter 6 or chapter 7. If you look at a parallel reference in the Sonata Gospels, you can't find a timeline because they don't record this temple cleansing. So we don't know if it was just this group of five or if there was, in fact, other disciples who were with them, but this is the group that has gone down to, gone up to Jerusalem, rather, his disciples, and then it also says that his mother and his brothers are also with him. But, there, you know, there really isn't very much said about the family of Jesus. We read this in Mark chapter 6. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. This was the Pharisees hearing Jesus speak and teach against them. And they were shocked to hear these words. But we see the mentioning of this family of Jesus. And so this is a part of the group that is now traveling with him to Jerusalem. We'll read a little bit later in the Gospel of John these words in chapter 7. Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing him. Now, even if there isn't a strict chronological order in what John is giving to us, it is very likely that the family is traveling with him only because it is the duty of a Jew and a Jewish family to go to Jerusalem for this feast of the Passover. It was a required feast for them to participate in. That The family traveling with them does not necessarily mean that they were believers or they were devoted to what it is that he is going to teach. So thirdly, we see in our setting that Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, which is the holiest event of the entire Jewish year. It is the first of three Passovers mentioned by John. And it is somewhat of an important timeline as we track the length of Jesus' ministry. Many people summarize that Jesus ministered for three to three and a half years. And one of the ways that we can confirm that is the mentioning of the three Passovers that take place on an annual basis. So the time from the presentation of John the Baptist, that this is in fact Jesus, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, to this event of the Passover would mark the three plus part of Jesus' ministry. Whether it was a month or three months or six months, we really don't know. But it does mark a bit of an important timeline as we try to understand the length of Jesus' ministry. So the Passover to the Jew is like Easter to the Christian. It is the most significant 
religious holiday in the lives of the Jews. Passover was one of three major feasts that all Jews were required to travel to Jerusalem to observe and to participate in. Now, particularly, the Passover celebrated God's deliverance to the nation of Israel when he had freed them from the bondage of slavery by the hands of the Egyptians. This is all recorded in the book of Exodus, as I'm sure all of you are aware. But because this is a required feast, Jews from all over the region, perhaps all parts of the world, would travel to Jerusalem for the purpose of offering up their sacrifices and to worship the God of their fathers, the Lord Yahweh. So that's the setting. Now, number two in our big part of the outline, we're going to see the conflict here. Jesus travels to Jerusalem, and here, in the conflict, Jesus finds corruption. It says in verse 14, that And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. So this is Jesus' view of what's taking place in the temple at the feast of the Passover. Now, one of the things that occurred to me is this. This was not Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem, to go to the temple, to observe one of the three major feasts. He has been there many, many, many times, and it is very unlikely that this selling of the sheep and the oxen and the exchanging of money was the first time that it had taken place. I would imagine that every time Jesus went and saw this, he was just embroiled in a righteous anger, seeing what the temple of the Lord had devolved into this place it is to be God's house, a place of worship, the place where the Jews believed that God actually existed, whether symbolically or literal. It was the holiest of places in all of the world, Jerusalem, the city of Zion, and most particularly the temple being the center of religious worship for the Jew. I would imagine Jesus was quite dismayed at what he saw. You know, the temple for the Jew is quite different from the church is for us today. You know, if something were to happen to this building, we the people who make up the church would just go find another place to worship, right? Isn't that what we would do? But for the Jew, when the temple was destroyed, they thought the end had come. They didn't know what they were going to do. They were without hope. They were without direction. The temple represented everything about their relationship with God. The temple, and we're going to look at this in just a second here, the temple represented the residence of God and within the inner workings of their system, which God had instituted back in the book of Exodus, the Holy of Holies, the place where God lived, only the high priest could enter into that place and he could only enter once a year. And I don't do this very often, but I want to do this to reinforce the importance of the temple. So i got some pictures for you here. This is from the ESV Bible. It is based upon the most current research into what the temple would have looked like in the day of Jesus. As you can see from this Layout. This complex was incredibly large. In fact, it was larger than several 
football field. So let me see if I can point this out to you. So this west wall here, I don't know if you can see that very well. This west wall was more than a quarter of a mile long. That's how big the temple complex was. Within the temple complex, you had here, this area, the court of women, which is where the women were allowed to go. They weren't allowed to enter past that door and go into the temple proper. But that court of women was 230 feet by 230 feet. And these four columns you see, these are lampstands. My flasher don't work very good here. Those four columns you see are 80 feet tall. So imagine how big of a structure that was. So the temple itself, which you see in this picture... And then you see kind of an up-close picture. It was estimated to be between 10 and 18 stories tall. Think about the marvel of that creation in the time of Jesus. And this is how big the temple was. So this last picture here, let me, yeah, this last picture here, this is the Temple Mount, you see on the corner here, that real high place all the way on the right. That is thought to be the place that Satan was tempting Jesus to throw himself off of to demonstrate that he really had the power of God. And the distance from the top of the Temple Mount to the valley below was 450 feet. That's a long drop, isn't it? This is an enormous complex that could have held thousands and thousands of people. And this is where Jesus enters into. Now, this picture here that you see, this last picture down here, you see this at the bottom? That is Golgotha. That is the place that Jesus would have died in plain view of the temple. Not a lot of coincidence in that. But this temple structure was revered by the Jew far and above everything else. And so when Jesus arrives, he doesn't find what he considers to be proper. Instead, he finds businessmen. He finds the sellers of oxen and sheep and doves, and he finds money changers exchanging money in the temple. Now, the reality of this is that this doesn't really connect with us very well because we're not a part of the sacrificial system. This has not been ingrained in us in such a way that we would understand what this means. But the oxen and the doves and the sheep were all necessary items for worship, and that is what is being sold in the temple. So, let's try to make a correlation here. So, imagine if you were to come into the building... And you were required to sit in an official chair as determined by the religious leadership. And you could only sing from the official song sheet that was approved by the religious leaders. And you had to wear a garment that was approved by the religious leadership. Or else you were not allowed to offer your worship. Now that sounds kind of ridiculous. But there's really not a way for us to understand the sacrificial system that the Jews lived by and what it meant for them to be required to have these things. So if you came to church to worship and you couldn't enter unless a businessman, likely paying tribute to the high priest, approved your interest, 
your, ent- your entrance into the temple area, you were pretty well stuck. You had no options and you had no choice if you were going to be a faithful worshiper of God. So the sacrificing of animals was an incredibly integral part of Jewish worship and of their sacrificial system. Now because they were likely traveling from very, very long distances by foot or on the backs of donkeys, it took a lot of time for the animals to get there. And it was quite likely that once the animals showed up, they were not suitable for sacrifice if the animal made it at all. It was very likely that the animal would be rejected and you would then be required to buy an animal from one of those who were selling these things in the marketplace, in the temple. So while they're selling these necessary items for worship, they are exploiting the privilege of worship. Now to give you an example, it is estimated that they would sell a dove, which was a part of their sacrificial system, that would really only need to be about a nickel, and they would charge nearly $4 for the sacrifice of that animal. So these people who are traveling from all over the world, out of obligation and desire to worship the Lord, are being exploited by the, money chain, by the, by the businessmen who are in the temple selling these animals for sacrifice. Well, in addition to those who were providing animals for sacrifice, you had the money changers who were there to exchange the coinage, the Roman coinage, into the only acceptable coinage of their life, and that was the Jewish coin or a Tyrian coin. They would not accept Roman money for the annual temple tax because they considered it to have the mark or the picture of an idol. So if you had Roman money, that was all you had to bring. And so the money changers would exchange that from Roman coinage into acceptable Jewish coinage. And they would often charge interest rates in excess of 12.5%. So this is what's taking place in the temple as Jesus arrives. Worship has been corrupted. And what began as a service of, of, uh, of convenience to those who were traveling instead became a corrupt Commercial venture. So the Passover and likely the other feasts weren't about the worship of God. They were about business. They were about making money. So anytime worship becomes something other than the worship of God, the love of God, enjoying the presence of God, there is a huge problem in the church or in the temple and most particularly in our lives. You know, I thought about this. And if you and I come to church for any other reason than to worship God, we've come with the wrong motives. I wonder how many of us really and truly prepare ourselves for this time of worship before we actually get here. You see, when we come unprepared, when we come out of duty or ritual, when we come to network with other people who would help my business grow, when we come to be known by others or to get to know others for selfish reasons, we have reduced the privilege of worship into some self-serving activity under the guise of worshiping God. Do you think God is pleased with that? 
Do you think that God knows our hearts when we arrive in this parking lot and as we enter into the building and as we sit down to sing songs and then to turn our attention to the eternal truth of His Word? You better believe God knows. But the big question is, is God pleased? Is God pleased with the condition that we arrive in spiritually on what is an important day in our life, that is, the body of Christ coming together to celebrate who He is and to worship Him? You know, as difficult as it, as it is for us to come in prepared in the way that we should, imagine what it was like for the religious leadership to corrupt the experience by exploiting the things that were necessary for you to worship the Lord. This is what Jesus is walking into, and this is the conflict. So number three, Jesus cleans house. I'm sure he's seen this many, many times, and because he has begun his public ministry, it is time for him to deal with what it is he's seeing. The temple had become polluted, and Jesus was going to clean it up. Verse 15, he made a scourge of cords, and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their table. So the scourge, of course, that Jesus made were likely the leather straps that the animals were bound up with. And this is very similar to the kind of scourge of cords that Jesus would himself be inflicted to, except this scourge, of course, didn't have the small fragments of bone or metal that were designed to rip his flesh away. He's simply making a commotion, and he is dealing with the corrupt nature of temple worship by, number one, letter A, driving the animals out, and B, by overturning the tables. Now, if you think about the size of that temple structure, and you think about the number of businessmen who are selling their animals, and the kind of space that these animals take up, and the tables filled with money changers and scales, and all the different parts of that exchange. And here comes Jesus, driving the animals out and overturning these tables. I can guarantee you that chaos and pandemonium have broken out. Animals are running everywhere. Coins are rolling everywhere. People are chasing their animals down to get them back. All kinds of people are now scrounging around on the ground to get these coins. But Jesus is going to clean God's house one way or the other. And rather than just driving them out and overturning the tables, he rebukes them. In verse 16, And to those who are selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Enough is enough. And Jesus wasn't going to allow this corruption and this polluting of the temple to take place any longer. You know, the book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi, wrote this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. He says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, this is God speaking through Malachi, and he will clear the way before me, John the Baptist, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And this is exactly what is taking place. As prophesied through Malachi, Jesus has arrived in his temple and it is his desire to set things right. It's fitting to mention this prophecy here because it not only speaks of what Jesus is doing in this moment, 
but it also has incredibly far-reaching implications into God's plan, leading us into the final day of judgment. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. This is what's taking place. This is what will take place in the day of judgment. And there isn't real metal that is being refined, but it is the hearts of people. Those who know Him and love Him and have their hope set on Him will be refined so that they may enter into the presence of the Lord. And those who don't know Him, those who don't love Him, those who have no hope in Him, will simply be burned up for an eternity, separated from God. What Jesus has done in the temple, physically and literally, He will do to the souls of mankind at the day of judgment, purifying for Himself those whose hearts are really and truly set on Him. And here's what I believe is the central important part of this narrative, is this, number four, Jesus demands pure worship. That word zeal that we see here, in verse 17, means passion and earnestness. Verse 17 reads, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. They either remembered that at the moment that He said it, or they remembered it much later as they reflected back on this experience. We will never know. But this quote is taken from Psalm 69, which is a mixture of messianic prophecy about the Messiah and that which spoke to the actual time of David. David's heart was zealous for God. David constantly defended the righteousness of God and because so, he suffered persecution and hardship at the hands of those whose hearts were not set on God in the same way that David's was. Jesus' actions were motivated by His passion, not for the temple itself, but for what it represented, the worship of the Almighty God. This speaks of Jesus' passion for pure worship, for worship in spirit and in truth, for that which is centered on God, on His plans, and on His purposes, and not on that which is going to benefit man. If you come to work, excuse me, if you come to church and you leave because you've made a really good contact today, you're totally off the reservation. You have no concept of what it means to come to God's house and to worship Him. What is it that we are zealous about today? What is our consuming passion in our life, how is our zeal for God? I think this is a, a direct challenge to us specifically and to us corporately about why we come and what we expect to happen when we're here. Jesus was zealous for true worship of God and he was not going to tolerate what was taking place in the temple any longer. 
Now, the big number three here, the question. We have the setting, we have the conflict, and here's the central question by the Jews, by the religious leadership. Verse 18, the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing such things? The question is, by what authority do you do this? They want to know what you're going to do is a miracle to show us that you have authority to do this thing that you have done. They really weren't seeking information, but they were simply questioning His authority. And what they're actually saying is, what right do you have to do this? Show us a miracle to do that. It really didn't matter what Jesus did. In the view of the religious leadership of the day, many were just not ever going to believe. We'll read this much later in John chapter 12. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. There's just not enough miracles that can be performed that will convince those with a hardened heart that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has done what he has said he has done in dying for our sin and making us acceptable to God. So they request a sign, but they completely miss the one that was just given and that Jesus has eliminated all of the sheep and all of the oxen and all the dove and all the corrupt money changers in the temple. So Jesus responds to their question with this in verse 19. Jesus answered them and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What's interesting about this quote here in the beginning of Jesus' ministry is that at the very onset, his first public appearance in Jerusalem, if you will, he's already looking to the culmination of his ministry, to the cross. Jesus never had any doubt about what his mission was. There was never any uncertainty about what was going to happen to him. Even here, he is speaking of the reality of his impending death by the hands of these religious leaders and stating that one day he would in fact die, but he would also be raised again. Now, he speaks in parable here, and no one understands him, and I would venture to say that the disciples didn't understand it either. They're thinking only in literal terms. So in verse 20, the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. Now, there's a lot of people who speculate that the temple building had been being built for about 46 years, and it wasn't yet completed, and yet Jesus is saying, well, you can tear this temple down and I'll build it up in three days. Well, that's an impossibility to them, isn't it? Because they're completely missing what it is Jesus is actually referring to, the death of himself, the destruction of his temple, his life. Verse 21, he was speaking of the temple of his body, and this is from John the Apostle, a post-resurrection perspective, but by what Jesus has just said. Remember, this was written many, many years after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And so as John is recounting this, he is giving a post-resurrection perspective of what Jesus said and what it actually means to his readers. Verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. The same inability to understand what this means is restated when Jesus was preparing them some years later for his imminent departure. He said this at the very beginning, and he says it again on the eve of his arrest 
and we read this in John chapter six, excuse me, John chapter twelve. These things his disciples did not understand. Jesus talking about him going to Jerusalem and dying. They didn't understand this at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the question that the Jews are asking, the religious leaders are asking, is by what authority are you doing what you're doing in the temple? And what Jesus gives as a response in a very veiled way is simply this, his deity and his eventual resurrection. Remember, John's presentation of Jesus is, Behold, this is God. And so all throughout his gospel, the deity of Christ is reaffirmed over and over and over. But what Jesus is speaking about most specifically here is his death and his eventual resurrection. And it is that which gives him the authority to cleanse his house, not the house of the religious leaders of the day. You see, we look back on this in a post-resurrection perspective And we remember that his death as the ultimate sacrificial lamb would render the Jewish sacrificial system obsolete and his resurrection as the triumphant Lord would lay the foundation for a new spiritual temple in its place and that is the church. It is the body of Christ. It is you and I individually. It is you and I corporately that become the new church. Now, verses 23 to 25 serve as a bridge into Jesus' ongoing ministry and into the next section of our study as we will look at the encounter with Nicodemus. And here's what verses 23 through 25 say. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing, But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So there's no way to know how long Jesus stayed in Jerusalem. The feast of Passover lasted a week. There was another major feast that was very closely connected to that. It's possible that Jesus stayed there for several weeks or perhaps even a month. We really don't know. But the summarizing statement here reveals three important things. While he was in Jerusalem, number A, he performed many miracles. Now John doesn't mention what those miracles are. It's possible that what we will see in some of the verses ahead will speak to those miracles. But since this temple cleansing is not mentioned in the other Gospels, we can't really know precisely what miracles John is referring to here. Letter B, that while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, and because he had performed these miracles, many believed in him. Believed in him. John doesn't give us a lot of detail. He doesn't tell us how many. To be sure, many were superficial because they saw the miracles and the signs, but some were genuinely seeking truth, and that's what we're going to find in the encounter with Nicodemus. And then letter C, Jesus was not entrusting himself to any of these who were believing in him because he knew what was in the hearts of men. He didn't need anybody to corroborate your profession or your profession or your profession of faith in him. He knew what was in the hearts of man, and because of that, he did not give himself to them like he did to the disciples. 
So this narrative discloses Jesus' intolerance for corrupt worship. It states at the onset of his ministry that Jesus had a forward view of the cross and it ends with the assurance that Jesus is God. He is the one who makes atonement for the sins of mankind, erasing the sacrificial system with his own death, with his burial, and his resurrection. What is it that we are zealous for when we come to this place of worship? What is it that consumes our thoughts? What do we do with what we've heard and with what we've learned when we leave? You know, I would venture to say that many of us, much of the time, come completely unprepared for worship, not giving serious consideration to the majesty of God, to the holiness of God. We come because it's what we do on Sunday morning at 9.30. We often don't live our lives throughout the course of the week mindful of the greatness of who God is and what he's done for us. We throw up a prayer when we've got a problem, where there's a big need. But in order to come to worship ready to meet the holy and living God, we have to be prepared. When we don't come prepared, I believe Jesus sees something in us that he doesn't want to see. We'll never be perfect. But to come to worship with it being just a second thought is an insult to the cross, to grace, to the hope we have in an eternity with Him. Pray with me, would you? Father, we know intellectually that You are indescribable, that You truly exceed our ability to define who You are and what You're like. We try with lots of fancy words, but in the end, You are beyond description. Your infiniteness is greater than our minds can even fathom. And yet, Father, we fail to recognize as closely as we should who you really are, giving great thought to what it is you've done for us through Christ on the cross. God, I pray even now that you would bring to our mind those things that are more important to us than coming to worship you. We pray that you would enable us and strengthen us to put aside those things that distract us from giving to you our whole heart. We thank you, Father, that the depth of our sin is not greater than the grace you provide. So we pray, Father, that you would humble us, that you would reveal yourself to us. We pray that you would convict us. We pray that you would draw us to yourself so that we would find strength and grace and mercy in our time of need. Father, thank you for your vast and indescribable love. May we celebrate who you are and what you've done as we sing together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.